Good morning, church. How are we doing today, everybody? God's already moving in our service today. I'm just excited to have the opportunity to just share his word. If you have your Bible with you, I wanna ask that you would go ahead and take it out, open it up. If you don't have a Bible with you, there are some on some of the racks that are outside by the doors. We'd love for you to have one of those. Acts chapter 25 is where we're gonna be. Uh, go ahead and open up, head over to Acts 25. As you're headed over there, I wanna make a couple of quick announcements. Uh, first of all, um, we're having trunk or treat today from 5 to 7 p.m. We are expecting approximately 11 billion children. <laughs> and uh, we would love it if you would be willing to donate some more candy. Um, so if you can bring candy by the commons today, uh, prior to trunk or treat, or I mean, even if you bring it at five o'clock, we will not be angry about that. But if you would bring that, that would be a great help. We would appreciate it. I also wanna remind you, next Sunday is Baptism Sunday. We already have 10 folks who have signed up to be baptized next week. It's gonna be a terrific celebration. If you have yet to be baptized by immersion, I wanna encourage you to go ahead and sign up. There's a flyer uh, you probably have seen that are, it's floating around, it's out there in some of the chairs. There's a QR code, you can use that to sign up. If you don't have a flyer and you wanna sign up or if you're joining us online, hnw.org slash baptism will get you right to the landing page where you can handle uh, signing up and we would love to celebrate with you next week as we baptize. All right, as you're headed over to Acts 25, I wanna give a brief introduction to the Bible for those in the room who may be new to the Bible. Uh, the Bible is divided into two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament gives us a record of God's chosen people, Israel, and tells us about their need for a rescue or redeemer. They use the word Messiah. Uh, the second portion of the Bible, the New Testament, tells us who the Messiah is. That his name is Jesus. He's not just a prophet or a teacher, but he is God in flesh. That he lives a sinless human life, born of a virgin, dies a sacrificial death on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, eradicate shame, and then three days later is raised from the dead. His disciples were so amazed by him being resurrected that they told anyone who would listen about him being the Messiah and they went to the ends of the earth. The book of Acts that we're studying right now is all about those individuals telling that Jesus is Messiah. Today, we're in Acts 25 and we are picking up the story of Paul's trial. So we're in Acts 25 starting in verse nine. He's before his second official, Festus. So I'm going to pray and then we're gonna read beginning in Acts 25 verse nine. So if you would pray with me. Lord, we thank you today that we have the opportunity to hear from you, God, from your word. Lord, right now, we, we just need kind of a miracle to happen. Uh, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit in this place. And God, we've been praying that your Holy Spirit would meet us. And so, Lord, I ask that somehow as I speak, that your Holy Spirit would inhabit these words, would challenge us, would encourage us, but God would also bring anyone who has yet to come to a place of faith that today would be that moment. God, they would say yes to you. They would make you their king. Father, we love you. We praise you. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 25, starting in verse nine. But Festus, wanting to do the Jews a favor, replied to Paul, are you willing to go up to Jerusalem to be tried before me there on these charges? Paul replied, I am standing at Caesar's tribunal 
where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as even you yourself know very well. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I am not trying to escape death. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then after Festus conferred with his counsel, he replied, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. This is the word of the Lord. Thought I'd keep it nice and breezy today and talk about the relationship between church and politics. Okay, sounds good? Um, the best time for me to talk about that is when we're not in the midst of an election season because sometimes whenever I talk about these things in the midst of an election season, people think that I am saying certain things when I am not trying to say certain things. So I hope that you will hear me loud and clear today. Today I wanna talk about, and this is basically the summation of the entire sermon. Are you ready? The, the difference between the empire and the kingdom. That's it. So Paul was a citizen of the Roman Empire, but also a citizen of the kingdom of God. We live in a new age, a different day. We're, we're part of a different empire, right? A different earthly government. But I'm gonna use the word empire as shorthand to talk about a particular way of living or thinking or acting. And then there's kingdom living. So today, I want us to think about the relationship between church and government. Now, we're out of the Baptist tradition. Baptists sort of came up with religious liberty. I mean, that's our thing. Separation of church and state, we invented that. But over the years, there's been kind of a, a different mindset that different traditions have presented on the relationship between the church and the state. I wanna just talk about those briefly. First one of those is out of kind of the Lutheran way of thinking, sometimes known as the two kingdoms Theology, two kingdoms says, there's a kingdom of the state, there's a kingdom of God, and the two shall never meet. Kind of think about the TV show Severance. You know, you got two different parts of your brain that think in that way. Then there's the Anabaptist way of thinking, which is kind of a reclusive way of operating. Basically, the church should never mix with the world and should as far as possible be removed from the world, hidden from the world. So kind of like the movie The Village, where these people are living as if the world has not gone on. I'm gonna say that neither of those work. And instead, I'm gonna propose what I believe the scripture teaches and what I think Paul is living here in Acts 25. And I think he actually refers to multiple times in his writing. And so today I want us to think about that. So I'm gonna have two points that I want us to think about and the relationship between empire and kingdom. And this is it. And I think this is the, the vision that the scripture gives us for living in the very real world. So first, I want us to do this. I want us to live in the empire. I want us to live in the empire. What do I mean by that? You don't have a choice. You have to live in the government that's been instituted. You have to live in the world. Paul understands that and he's pulling those particular levers. So here at the conclusion of this passage, he's appealing to Caesar. That would be the, uh, the sort of same for us in our world if we were appealing to an appellate court or perhaps Caesar would be the equivalent of going all the way to the Supreme Court. It would be this idea that we're gonna go all the way to the top. So why does Paul do this? Because Paul understands the way that the government operates. Back in Acts chapter 16, you probably remember that he asked the magistrates of the city to walk him out of the city because he was a Roman citizen and they had mistreated him. So over and over, we see Paul understanding and using the way that the government operates to his benefit. So this is the point. You can't pull out of the government, and I think that to try and hide from the government is actually a misreading of the scripture. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 21, 
Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus is speaking specifically here about taxes, but the principle related to government continues on. You're going to pay taxes to Caesar. There are certain places where you will give allegiance to the government, in other words, but whenever there's an area where your allegiance to God needs to come before your allegiance to Caesar, then that allegiance to God will transcend that. So I want to talk about a few principles that I believe that Paul teaches and shows us, not specifically and explicitly in this passage, but throughout the New Testament. And I think this will be instructive for us as believers as we consider how would we relate then to the government. So first principle, governments are necessary and God-ordained. Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verse 1, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities since there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Now, we love this verse whenever our guy or our gal is in office, right? Yet God put them there. We don't like it so much whenever it's someone we don't like. So this is a helpful moment for us right now. Listen, God has instituted government and authority, but he never says in the scripture, and Paul never says in Romans 13, that governments are inherently moral or good. Does that make sense? They're necessary, but they're not necessarily good. They're helpful. We need governments for things like uh, military, law enforcement, diplomacy, legislation, creating social services, having smooth roads, et cetera, et cetera. So they are necessary, but they are not necessarily good. They're a good thing to have. So then the second principle with regard to the government, governments are necessary and God-ordained. Secondly, corruption is common. So even though governments are necessary and God-ordained, at the same time, corruption will be common in government. Why is that? Lord Acton put it this way, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's difficult if you are part of an organization that is centered on power, and that's at root what politics is. Politics is power. It's about the uh, obtaining of power and the preservation of power. And Jesus came to be the suffering servant. He taught us to wash the feet of those around us. So it's difficult then to sometimes find a way for Christians to navigate in the waters of politics because politics is all about power. This is why corruption comes up regularly. So I don't want you to mishear me on this. I do think we need Christians who serve in office, but I also don't want us to be naive. Those who are believers who serve in office will have to struggle mightily to not lose their integrity. How often do we see people quote Bible verses, and then vote for policies that are the very opposite of the scripture they claim to follow. So we should pray for our leaders and for our politicians, specifically for those who call themselves Christians. I would say that whenever you quote a Bible verse and then do the very opposite, that is the very definition of taking God's name in vain. You know, I think if you were like me, I was raised in a way where taking God's name in vain first and primarily was about cussing, saying the word God as part of the cuss word. Now, I wanna be clear. I'm not saying go do that, okay? All right, I'm, I'm anti that. But I would also say that the bigger problem is that taking God's name in vain is using God's name for political gain. Right? We're using it as a prop. That's a problem. 
So this is where corruption comes in. Right now, one of the things that we see regularly is kind of this rise of a, a move called Christian nationalism. Sometimes, it's, it's, Christian nationalism is essentially a redo of something that was popular in the 90s in certain circles called Christian reconstructionism. You don't have to look these things up. Basically, the idea is, is that we need to recreate the United States or nations ought to be founded on Christianity as the official religion and with Christian principles. Now, please listen to me. I'm not opposed to having a Christian nation in theory. I'm not opposed to Christian principles. So listen, this is what I'm trying to say. The problem comes in practicality. So it's great in theory, but whenever you try to put these things together, what happens? Oftentimes, in fact, I would say pretty much every time that you mix religion and politics, you get politics. If you look at the history of the church, when the church was at her most powerful from a political perspective, back at the height of the power of the Catholic church, when the church was essentially running the government, right, and blessing monarchies and, and that sort of thing, and one sense the church had all of this power, but the problem was that they surrendered a faithful witness because that power made them appear corrupt and evil in the eyes of the people. Does this make sense? Yeah, so now let's fast forward to the 21st century. Whenever we get all fired up about politics and we've gotta have Christian values and Christian nation and that sort of thing, the people who are in power, if they are only using Jesus as a prop, then we end up shooting ourselves in the foot with regard to effective witness because we act like we think that the government is more powerful than the Holy Spirit. Do not put your faith in whoever is in the White House or the governor's mansion or whatever office. Put your faith in the King of Kings, in Jesus, right? Does that make sense? Right, okay. So we start with that. So the, the thing that I think that we need to understand is that with regard to Christian nationalism is that it often confuses the church with the state. And in doing so, it ends up giving us a more corrupt version of the church. So again, this isn't saying that, um, that Christian politicians are a bad thing. It's just that we've gotta be very aware and very careful. So first, governments are necessary, God ordained. Secondly, corruption is common. Third, participation in the government, participation in the government is helpful and wise usually. Participation in the government is helpful and wise usually. So you should vote, absolutely. You should run for office if you think that you can maintain your integrity and you believe God has called you to do so. You should participate in the shaping of your government and of your state. But this is important, please hear me on this. Your politics ought to be shaped by your theology, not the other way around. Let's say that again. Your politics ought to be shaped by your theology, not the other way around. One of the difficulties we run into on a regular basis in our country is that we have two main political parties, and sometimes we get so fired up that one is evil that we then decide, well, the other one must be good. Most of the time, I would tell you, neither one of those are all that great. And neither one of them are the church. Does that make sense? So I think that we need to not get so cozy with political party A that we change our theology so that our theology sounds like a particular platform of talking points. It needs to sound like the teachings of Jesus. 
Does that make sense? Right. So let me just give an example. If you said, Steve, characterize yourself politically, this is the way that I would describe myself. Confused. No, just kidding. This is it. This is, I would say that I tend to be, I'm going to speak in generalizations, I tend to be conservative on social issues, but tend to be what people would, they would use the word liberal, liberal on uh, issues with concern for the poor, okay? Now, why is that? Well, whenever I read the Bible, there are 2,000 verses that talk about care for the poor and the vulnerable, 2,000, like that's a lot, okay? 2,000. So do I think that God cares for the poor and the vulnerable? Yes, absolutely. He does. So one of the difficulties that I find myself in is that one of our political parties regularly speaks about being conservative on social issues, but whenever it comes for policies that protect the poor and the vulnerable, they tend to vote against those. Okay? But then the other political party, which often has an eye towards the poor and the vulnerable, regularly rejects the position that I believe the Bible teaches on uh, social issues. So you can see then that I choose personally to get less excited about candidates and more excited about issues because I think it's easier for me to vote on issues than it is for me to vote on candidates because most of those candidates belong to a party and neither one of the parties really fits into the vision given in the New Testament. Does that make sense? All right. Okay. So because of that, that's why I'm typically never going to stand up and say vote for person A or for person B, uh, because I think most of the time, and there might be exceptions to that, but most of the time, what I'm going to tell you is, is I think that this issue lines up with the teachings of Jesus and scripture. And so we ought to be concerned about that. So for example, with the poor, I would say that the scripture is clear. God commands us to care for the poor. And so whenever I see issues that come before us uh, at the local level or at the state level or at the national level, I'm going to be in favor of that. And some people will be like, well, you know, that's a liberal issue. Well, if the word liberal means generous, then yes, you're right. Because I'm gonna say that lines up with what Jesus would say. And then at the same time, whenever some of those issues are more conservative on the social end, and people will say, well, you know, I thought that you supported kind of more liberal ideas. I'm saying, no, I support what I believe the scriptures teach. Okay, so that's where I'm coming at on that. So I'm sharing all of this so that we can kind of get a vision of the way that I believe that Jesus was teaching his followers and then Paul carried on the way that we interact with the government. I think the best example we've seen of this in the modern era is probably the civil rights movement. We tend to think about the civil rights movement as something that was black and white, which in many ways it was, but the civil rights movement, I think we should also think of as a religious movement because it was led predominantly by pastors out of the black church. Why did they do that? Because they were teaching and insistent, and I believe they were right, that every person is created in the image of God and thereby every person ought to be treated as if they were created in the image of God and we ought to enact policies and laws that reflect that. Does that make sense? So because of that, then we should participate, I would say, in the government in a way that reflects kingdom values, kingdom teaching in the empire. So sometimes this might mean that we'll do things like, hey, I'll go participate in a march or a protest, or I'll post something on social media, or I'll, you know, do whatever. But we need to, at the same time, live in such a way that our values are driven by what Jesus tells us they ought to be, not by what whatever news channel tells us they ought to be. So you're like, okay, well, that was pretty confusing. So what am I supposed to do? Glad you asked. I would say that the best view of government for Christians is this. It's useful, but also you ought to be skeptical of it at the same time. 
Like, it is helpful to get certain things done. Paul appeals to Caesar. He uses his citizenship. That is a helpful thing. At the same time, be skeptical and recognize politicians will say things and do things by using the name of Jesus out of one side of their mouth that contradict Jesus out of the other side of their mouth. Okay, so live in the empire. You can't escape that. Secondly, live from the kingdom. Live from the kingdom. Paul is on trial in the city of Caesarea Maritima. And if you had the opportunity to travel to Israel and go to Caesarea Maritima, Caesarea Maritima basically just means Caesarea by the sea. So you're right by the Mediterranean. There's a giant athletic arena there where there are gladiator battles and uh, chariot races and that sort of thing that happened back in ancient days. And then your guide will take you to a place where there's these just two big holes in the ground that are lined with bricks and uh, will tell you these were cells. These were jail cells, prison cells. Probably... Probably the Apostle Paul was held prisoner in one of those cells. And this is probably where he wrote the book of Philippians. There's a lot of reasons that people believe that. But if you think about some of the athletic metaphors Paul uses in the book of Philippians, it makes sense that he's listening to games and contests out the window of his cell uh, while he's writing the letter to the church at Philippi. So I just want, if you don't mind, I wanna just take a moment. I'm gonna just flip over to the book of Philippians. I'm gonna go to chapter one, verse 27. I want you to listen. As Paul is on trial and he's there in Caesarea Maritima, listen to this thing that he says. Just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Did you notice that? He said, as citizens of heaven. Now remember, back in Acts 16, he's like, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. Here in Acts 25, he's saying, I'm gonna appeal to Caesar. He understands his Roman citizenship. But when he's writing to the church, he says, my primary citizenship is in the kingdom. It's in heaven. It's with Jesus. We, you, know, you might have your Texas driver's license or your blue passport, and that's great, but those are not your primary citizenship if you believe in Jesus. Your primary citizenship is a citizen of the kingdom. We serve a different king, and if the interests of King Jesus ever rub up against the interests of Uncle Sam, we choose King Jesus, right? So does Paul want a good verdict? Absolutely. He's wanting Felix or Festus or whoever's gonna end up passing down the verdict to give him one. Does he wanna be executed? Absolutely not. But at the same time, he's going to serve King Jesus first and foremost. So here's our motto. Are you ready? This is what I would say our motto is. We live in the empire, but we live from the kingdom. We live in the empire, but we live from the kingdom. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, if you've ever heard that passage preached and you've grown up in church, perhaps you've heard he is the way, the truth, and the life, all three referring only to eternity. For example, Jesus is the way to heaven. No one comes to the Father but through me. Totally true, completely agree with that. At the same time, do you remember last week, Acts 24, Paul is defending himself and he says, I'm, member, I'm a member of a group called the way, which they call a sect. That was what Paul said. What did he, why did they call the earliest version of Christianity the way? Because Jesus said, I am the way 
and there is a way to live in the world, and this is the way. Forgive and love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Be generous, right? So he's teaching these particular things. So whenever John the Baptist said, those, the one who has two cloaks should give one to the one who has none. And whenever um, the early church in Acts chapter two shared with those who didn't have things, they were all living out an example of the way that Jesus taught them to live. So Jesus is the way to heaven, but Jesus is also the way to live on earth. So why does this matter? Because our temptation is, listen, our temptation is to import empire ways of thinking and ways of doing things into the church. That's the temptation. Let me put it more plainly. The temptation is to think the only way we're ever gonna fix this country is to fight fire with fire, so we've gotta live like the empire in order to change the empire. Doesn't work, right? There was a, a scientist by the name of, or still is by the name of Susan Samard, and she wrote a book called Finding the Mother Tree where she talks about the discoveries that she made in forests. And in forests, she discovered that forests help one another Thrive. And by one another, I'm referring to the trees, the plants that are all there. Their roots share nutrients, water, carbon, etc. So tree A has more nitrogen than it needs. It sends it along the root system to tree B. Why does this matter? This is what I want you to hear. God made the world in such a way that life would help other lives flourish. Okay? That's how God made the world. The way that the uh, that the world is wired is connection. Now think about the way Jesus taught. Jesus taught a kingdom way of living. This is why he wants us to forgive one another. This is why he wants us to love one another because he knows we're all connected. This is why he wants us to be generous, why he wants us to share, because we're all connected. Think about the way that he taught. It's always about connection, loving your neighbor, right? Always connected. Now then think about the empire. The way the empire thinks, the way the empire thinks is we're separated and we gotta compete with one another. I gotta get mine, you can worry about you. So do you see how the church then is so different from the empire? Because the church ought to model a way of living where we say that we are all connected. So what happens is, is that sometimes people think we have to bring the fight fire with fire mentality into the church with regard to the state. Why do we think that? Because we tend to think that the ways of Jesus won't work. Yeah, we just don't think that they're strong enough. I believe that prayer is more powerful than the president, right? I think that a lot of us in this room do, and I want us to hear today the only way, the only way that our nation will be changed is not because we go participate in a voting drive. I mean, it might affect some things on certain issues, but you know what's gonna change is an awakening of hearts, and I believe that a spiritual move will change hearts more quickly than any legislation that could ever be passed. Amen. So the gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus, is teaching us to live these connected lives, that the cross is our model Jesus laid down his life for us. We are willing to sacrifice for others. The Holy Spirit guides us in a spirit of cooperation and connection, not a spirit of separation and competition. So 
I believe then we ought to live in a unique way. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the church is the conscience of the state. And this is what he meant by that. The, the state will often talk about morality, but when push comes to shove, the state will surrender morality. The church is intended to say that's not the way you're supposed to live. So let's just take some examples right now. I mean, you look at what's happening right now between Israel and Gaza. That is empire thinking 101, right? We've got dead children on both sides, horrific violence happening. Why? Because empire thinking is ruling that. What is empire thinking? I gotta crush my enemy. The only way to win is through violence, right? That's the way that the empire operates. Now, you're probably thinking like, well, I mean, Steve, that's the only way we can deal with certain people. Listen to me. I'm not saying that we don't sometimes find ourselves in situations where, where violence is necessary. What I'm trying to tell you is, is that empire thinking leads to death and destruction, okay? We can go to the, the mass shooting in Maine that just happened a few days ago. What happens there? That's, that's empire thinking. An individual lost his job, went on a, a shooting rampage, I think. I don't remember the exact number of people that were shot. It doesn't matter. Killed a lot of people, hurt a lot of people. What happens? There's a hopelessness in the human heart. So, so what happens there? Because that individual is hopeless, then they think the only solution is, is to take that anger out on others and then eventually take their own life. But what I'm trying to say is, is that there is a different way and that way is the kingdom way. So what I want us to hear today is that if we try to bring that kind of thinking into the church, it'll be corrupted, we'll lose our witness. But if we use the kingdom way of living, then we'll actually demonstrate there's a separate way. So MLK used the, the phrase, the beloved community to refer to the church. Thinkers like Stanley Hirewas, uh, William Cavanaugh and others have spoken about this, but here's the thing. What happens in this room ought to be so compelling, so beautiful and so different that people who come into this say, this is way better than anything that a government could provide. So they ought to come in here and go, wow, there's people from all kinds of nations and backgrounds, uh, all people from all kinds of uh, professional, educational backgrounds, people from all sorts of economic backgrounds, and yet they live in this radical community where they love one another, they share the things that they have. People ought to come in here and say, look at the way that they love one another. People ought to come in here, and they see these kinds of things, and as they see those things, they go, this is the superior way to live. This is why we elevate prayer every week and we have a time of prayer because we believe that prayer actually works. Now, please hear me. Do we pray for things and pray for people and sometimes those prayers are not answered in the way that we want? Absolutely. At the same time, have we seen God answer prayer here at Houston Northwest? 100%. We've seen people who were infertile praying for children and God gave them kids. We've seen marriages restored. We've seen people healed of cancer. We've seen God provide financially. We've, we've seen these things and we keep praying because God keeps answering. Again, God doesn't always answer in the way that we want God to answer on the timetable that we want God to answer, but we believe that God hears our prayers and answers those, those prayers. So here's the thing. What happens in this room has the potential to be far more compelling than anything that happens in the government. So why don't we trust it? Because I think that sometimes we lose faith in the story and the power of the gospel. What I want you to hear today, the story of Jesus, his redemption, his crucifixion, his resurrection is sweeter, better, more compelling than any story that the world could ever provide. And if we will center this church on the kingdom, the way of living Jesus promised, we will find something beautiful. This is why Eugene Peterson said, the gospel of Jesus Christ 
is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. Most people think that the church is political because they run voting drives and hand out issue guides, but really the church is political because the church creates a way of living that is far superior to anything the empire could ever provide. This is why the ascension of Jesus Christ is an essential doctrine for us. At the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is ascended to the right hand of the Father. Why? To show us he is ruling and reigning. I mean, and I know that right now you say, well, man, Steve, you talked about Israel, Gaza, mass shootings. The darkness of the world sometimes feels so heavy. Are you sure? Yes, this is, listen to me. The darkness of the world is a reminder empire thinking ultimately fails. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father is a reminder that eventually Jesus will set all things right. So we can put our hope in one of those places. I'm not gonna put my hope in the empire. I'm gonna put my hope in the kingdom. So I want us to consider today what we ought to do. Some of us today, we've been living our lives, not kind of get away from government. We've been living our personal lives by empire thinking. So we've been thinking about how to handle our marriage, our finances, our work life, ambition, sex, etc., through the lens of the way the world would operate with empire thinking. Some of us are already believers, right? But we slip into empire thinking in those ways. I just wanna say today, let's just turn away from empire thinking entirely and, and live by kingdom thinking. Second thing I would say is that if you have never surrendered your life to the king, then you cannot live by the kingdom. The only way to live the kingdom is to have the Holy Spirit, and you only get the Holy Spirit when you come to faith in Jesus. I could never, I could never live the way that Jesus wants me to live if I didn't have the Holy Spirit. It's too hard. It's too hard. I mean, I... I would never be able to forgive the people I need to forgive. I would never be able to love people that I'm supposed to love. I would never be able to navigate this world in the way that I'm supposed to. I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't wanna be generous. I'd wanna keep everything to myself. I'm able to do those things because the Holy Spirit is in my life and he's transformed my life. So what I want you to hear today is if you want to live a new life, place your faith in Jesus. Confess your sin, confess your sin. Trust that the cross is enough for your sin to be forgiven, your shame to be eradicated, and believe that Jesus was resurrected to give you eternity and that he'll fill you with the Holy Spirit. He'll give you the power to live. So for those of us in this room, some of us, this was, a, this was more helpful on the government side. Others of us, it's more helpful on the personal living side. So this is the moment where what we need to do is we need to decide. Do we wanna live by the empire or do we wanna live by the kingdom? Do we wanna let this rule our lives, or do we want to let the king rule our lives? Let's choose the master because we can't serve both. And today I hope that we'll choose King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that today we, we got to hear about the kingdom. And Lord, we, we got to be reminded that the, the, the empire is a flawed way of, of leading us, of causing us to think. 
God, thank you for reminding us that we're to love our neighbors, that we're connected to one another. God, that you care for us, that you wanna be connected to us. That's, that's what the cross and the resurrection is. So God, I wanna pray right now for anyone in this room who has yet to say yes to you. If this is you, if you've never said yes to Jesus, I just want you to pray with me right now. Nobody looking around, just pray with me. God, I'm, I'm ready to come to faith in you. I wanna surrender my life to you. I believe that Jesus is your son. I, I'm ready now to make Jesus my king and I'm ready to become a Christian for the first time, to make Jesus my way of living. I, I, I believe that you love me. and I'm thankful for that. Thank you for the cross and thank you for the empty tomb. Nobody looking around, if that's you, and you just said yes to Jesus for the first time, and you're ready to start following him today, would you just raise your hand right now and say, that's me, I'm ready to say yes to Jesus. Father, thank you. Thank you for those of us in this room who are ready to make kingdom living and kingdom thinking the way of our life our lives. And Lord, I pray that today we would surrender our hearts and our lives to you. God, we pray this and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any questions about what you just heard, we'd love to talk with you. You can get connected at hnw.org about what we believe or how to join a small group or follow us on social media as well. Thank you so much for joining us and we'd love to see you soon.